If you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to the Old Testament book of Ezra. Comes after Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. I'm going to go ahead and pray now, and then I'll explain a little bit about what we are doing in the book of Ezra. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your faithfulness to your people. We, your people, are certainly undeserving of your covenant faithfulness. We are certainly undeserving of you sending your son Jesus to rescue us. We are undeserving of the gift of the new birth that you've given to all in this room who know you truly. We are undeserving of every breath and every heartbeat, undeserving of being gathered together with your people on another Lord's Day and to have a copy of your word in front of us. God, you are so kind and faithful and gracious to us. I pray as we begin a journey through a new and lesser, perhaps known book of the Bible, that you would continue to show us that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. It is useful for correcting, for rebuke, for encouragement, and for upbuilding, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good deed. So be with us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just so you know where we are going, uh, we're going to do a summer uh, sermon series in the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. I just want to footnote, there will be a handful, a few times uh, throughout the next three or so months where we will, we will go back to Matthew here and there a few different times, a couple times in May. Uh, those will be times where I won't be able to uh, be here on a Sunday to preach. But for the most part, we're going to be in Ezra over the next few months. And I want to say a word about uh, this sermon series. Doesn't Ezra just bring a smile to your face? You're like, we're, we're going to, to Ezra. Okay. Uh, so, why, why are we going to the book of Ezra? Well, let, let me just say uh, from the get-go here that uh, we've spent the last eight months or so walking through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. One of the most absolutely incredible and applicable sections of Scripture you could ever find. I mean, you just, you read the text and you are immediately applying it to your life. Or there's just, you just, you can immediately do that. And that was great. I loved being able to be a part of that and to, to study that with you over the last several months. But I wanted something almost the opposite. I wanted something very different for a few months this summer. And so I just want to warn you, uh, through these sermons, especially in the front end of these sermons, there's going to be a little bit more of historical background than I would normally have been doing in the last year to set the stage as to what exactly is happening to make sense out of the events that we are reading about. Uh, if you're like me, Books like Ezra are often books that we skim through quickly because we sometimes just don't know who these kings are and what these events are and why this matters. And so I hope that there will be some clarity on that in the next few months. I also, I know I prayed this. I want to, I know this, this is something when you put it to the test, it always proves true, but I wanted to put to test the idea that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Uh, there is no chapter of the Bible that is completely irrelevant to us and to our lives. There is no part of Scripture that has nothing whatsoever to do with the redemption in Christ. And so all Scripture is profitable. And honestly, we've been in the New Testament a lot recently, a lot. And that's great. I love the New Testament. But we got 66 books in our Bible, and I want to go to both Testaments. So I wanted to spend some time in the Old Testament as well. I also think it's a good exercise to see how events in that covenant connect to and relate to us in the new covenant era. And that's one of the things we will be looking at is themes 
that run from the beginning to the end of the Bible, and those themes pass straight through Ezra, and they find their way ultimately to Jesus and to us today. Now, originally, the, the vast majority of scholars agree on this. There's, there's good evidence that Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book. In the Hebrew Bible, they were one book, Ezra-Nehemiah. Just Ezra-Nehemiah was one single book, and I think that's probably correct. If the Lord is willing, perhaps next summer we will go through Nehemiah. Who knows? But uh, we're not going to go to Nehemiah right now. We're going to work on the 10 chapters that we have in front of us in Ezra. It was not actually separated into two books until the 200s AD by origin. So for we have very strong evidence of it being one book originally. So I find Nehemiah gets a lot of time. Ezra gets almost none. So I want to I start at the very beginning of that two-part book. Now let me say some things. I don't know if this will encourage you or discourage you. Ezra and Nehemiah are not directly quoted in the New Testament at all. Say, wow, okay. How about this? There are zero miracles recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah. Not one miracle in either of those two books. And I think that can cause people to bypass them at times. But let me say this. These books are actually incredibly relevant to us. Because I don't know about you, I don't tend to experience genuine miracles every other day of my life. Those are pretty rare, few and far between. When you see genuine miracles, although I'm not against praying for those things, they're not a regular everyday part of our life today. But here's what is an everyday part of our life. Tell me, what do you think about this? In Ezra and Nehemiah, we see God's providence over world affairs on full display. I'll just tell you, I did not plan to pick a book that emphasized God's providence since we're doing a Sunday school series on God's providence. I did not plan that. I just, when I started studying Ezra, the providence of God is on every, every page of Ezra. There it is. Again, how about this? Opposition to genuine believers who want to do what is right. Is opposition a common theme today in our world to Christians who genuinely want to do what is right and biblical and godly? That marks all the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Every time there's an advance, there's a setback. Does that sound like our lives at all? You make a step forward and then there's opposition or pushback. How about the theme of prayer? There are some amazing prayers. You ever hear about the nines? Daniel 9, Ezra 9, and Nehemiah 9. Those are three chapter-long amazing prayers, and they are worth study. Daniel 9, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, those three nines are phenomenal Old Testament prayers about God's work in the world and of the need of repentance. That is a common theme that we're going to see in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. There is, there is a common theme, a need for repentance amongst God's people. When it looks like there's going to be success, it looks like we're reaching this amazing level, there are setbacks, not just from outward opposition, but guess what? From inward sin amongst the covenant people of God. Those are the most sorrowful and challenging of all setbacks, aren't they? I mean, think about it. It's one thing to receive pushback from outside, but isn't it another thing to deal with the sin inside? That's a whole nother, and that we will see both of those in the book of Ezra. And here's another thing that I find truly moving in the book. And you'll see this if we get to it next summer in Nehemiah especially, but there is an, a special focus on what we might call today the ordinary means of grace. What I mean is Ezra is a Bible guy. He loves to study the Bible. Doesn't do miracles, 
not kind of a prophet in the sense that we often think, getting direct words from heaven. He is a guy who opens his Old Testament, studies it profoundly and passionately, and then what does he do? He gets up and he preaches it. He teaches it to the people, and the people respond with tears. They respond with amens. They respond raising their hands. They respond by bowing down to the ground. When the scripture is read from, guess what? Sunrise until midday. They have a six-hour Bible reading, and this happens multiple times in these books, and the people are broken by God's Word. They are humbled by God's Word. They have a desire for God's Word, and they are led to repentance through God's Word. Is that relevant to us today? Absolutely it is. You see a lot of the things that we would think of as ordinary parts of the Christian life uh, that are extraordinarily revealed in this book. So that's why the book of Ezra Number two, I'm just going to walk through a, just kind of a, this is not really a sermon outline, just kind of some, some thoughts here of what, what we're doing. Number two, here's a goal that I have. A goal is to, well, let's put it this way. Imagine this. Imagine there's a period of the Old Testament that is shrouded in darkness for a lot of us. If we're being honest, the post-exile period of the Old Testament not probably a lot of us are expert on that area. That's the part I have not, it's, very, it's been very dim in my, in my mind. And so this involves uh, at least eight Old Testament books. Let me just name them, and we're going to be jumping around in these eight books as we go. So here we go. First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Those are all five books that are written after the exile. Explain what that is in a minute. These are also the last five historical books before the 400 years of silence, before the birth of Jesus. These are the last parts of the history of the Old Testament. Chronicles, 1st and Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And then you have three prophets. Uh, you have the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So, I don't know about you, but those eight books, aren't they a little bit murky in some of our minds? Those are not books that we tend to have the kind of clarity we do with maybe Romans or Matthew or John. These are books that are a little bit more foggy, at least for some of us. And for me, certainly that's been the case. So I wanted to be challenged. I wanted to go to a place where I don't spend a lot of time, and I wanted to see what there was to see there. So here's, here's my, my hope. This may not happen, but the Lord is merciful. Perhaps this will happen for you. I, I hope that I can sort of be a tour guide and take a flashlight. I hope my flashlight's not too dim. And we can go into this little section of the Old Testament. It's about a 110-year period. Okay, this post-exile period. This is the period right after Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel. It's the period right after those guys. And it's this lesser-known part of the Old Testament, but vitally important. And I hope we have a little flashlight. The battery's not too low. We can walk in, and we can shine a light at these eight books. And we're going to look around, and we're going to see what there is to find there. And these are the last books leading up to the time of the birth of Jesus. Now, again, these are all very introductory comments, and this is probably not new to most of you, but I'll just speak as if you've never even heard of the Bible before, just for a few minutes. If you've never even heard of the Bible, you've hardly looked at a Bible, you don't even know that there's testaments in a Bible, let me just say for a second, the Old Testament is split up into this very basic structure in your Bible. It goes like this, very simple, easy to remember. It's 17, 5, 17. If you can remember that, you've got the Old Testament. Are you ready? The first 17 books are history, basically in chronological order, basically. First 17 books of your Old Testament, Genesis all the way through uh, Esther, you've got 17 books of history, and then you've got five books of poetry, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, th those books. You've got those in the middle, five books of poetry, and then you've got 17 books of prophecy. Now, the prophets 
take place during the history books. Do you understand? They don't take place later. Those 17 later books take place during the early 17 historical books. So 17 books of history, five books of poetry, 17 books of prophecy. And we're going to be dealing with uh, some books in both of those categories of history and prophecy. Just so you know, within the book of Ezra, within this uh, little over 100-year period of time, the events of Esther take place within the time period of the book of Ezra, and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. I almost fell out of my chair when this dawned on me, not that long ago, sadly to say. I was blown away that Ezra references the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah in chapters 5 and 6, and I can't wait because when we get to chapters 5 and 6, I'm going to pause and we're going to spend a couple weeks in Haggai because Haggai illuminates the middle of Ezra. It's just amazing. I love when you see Bible books interconnecting, and the way they interconnect is truly exciting. It's really amazing. They help mutually interpret and illuminate one another. So Haggai and Zechariah's ministries take place in the middle of Ezra. Esther takes place along that time period as well. And then Nehemiah, the tail end of Nehemiah is when the ministry of Malachi almost certainly took place. The last three chapters or four chapters of, of, of Nehemiah is when the book of Ezra, excuse me, the end of Nehemiah is when Malachi takes place. Now, the, the main point of the sermon today is very simple. God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises, even when they look impossible. And that's because of his providential faithfulness over us. God always keeps his promises. My, my dad has said that in the Bible, God is not trying to say a thousand things in a few ways. In the Bible, God is trying to say a few things in a thousand ways. And I will say this, the theme of God being faithful to his word, to many of us, is so basic. It's so elementary. Of course, of course, God is faithful to his word. Do you understand that every week we fall short of fully believing and embracing that truth? And so what is the Bible doing? It's giving us a thousand lessons in this one simple truth. We can trust him with all that we have. We don't need to doubt God. We don't need to worry that God has fallen asleep at the wheel of the universe, that God is off the throne. We don't have to worry that God doesn't know what's going on or that things are catching him off guard. One pastor said, the Trinity never meets in an emergency session. <laughs> presidents do. Oh no, this uh, sudden emergency. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Even us with the water this week. What are we going to do with no water in our buildings this Sunday? But the Trinity never meets in emergency session. God sits on his throne and he reigns. And when I think of Isaiah who comes before the, uh, the book of Ezra, remember Isaiah's famous calling when Isaiah sees the Lord highly exalted, train of his robe filling the temple. Remember this? Remember what happens? That opening verse is this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne. There is no accident that that sentence is the way it is. It's not simply giving you the date. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. I want you to stop for a second. King Uzziah had been king over Israel for more than half a century, more than 50 years. And when he died, do you think that created some upheaval in the social fabric in Israel? The guy that's been king since I was born, since my dad was born, maybe since a grandfather was born, has just died. It's going to create a sense of unrest and turmoil. What are we going to do? Our faithful king is gone. He was a generally very good king. What are we going to do? And Isaiah gets the vision of what? 
in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord was still sitting on his throne. And that's the point. A thousand times over, Scripture is telling us God can be trusted. So I want to try to set the stage here by telling you about the dilemma of what is going on. So if you look at the screen uh, behind me here, uh, okay, if you look at this here, if you can read that, you've got creation in Genesis, and then you've got the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God promises that he is going to bless the nations through Abraham and his seed, his offspring. And then we are told, if you look here, that the exodus happens. They go into Egypt for 400 years, and God delivers them out through mighty works. They wander through the wilderness for 40 years, and then they do the conquest in Joshua, and they take the land. And then after that, the time of judges and the time of the kingdom comes, where Saul and David and Solomon reign over uh, the kingdom. And then what you find is that there is this time uh, of the kings where there are kings in the south and kings in the north, and eventually uh, the kings are in the north displaced. And the kings in the south go on for a little longer until finally they are uh, taken by Babylon. Now, my, my uh, slides here are not working, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to ask uh, Kevin in the back to help me out here. Kevin, can you move to the next slide? There you go. Perfect. Okay, so if you look here, uh, you will notice that um, you've got really these three dates that are important in the Old Testament. So you've got right there, 605 BC. What happened here was Babylon, this big kingdom, comes against Israel, and they come against the southern kingdom, and they take their first exiles away from there back to Babylon. And you can see Daniel and his friends as teenagers were exiled at that time. And that's when Daniel chapter 1 begins, right? They're, they're taken away. But that's not the only time people were taken captive. It happened again. In 597 uh, BC, Ezekiel is taken into exile. And the book of Ezekiel begins really around this time. As Ezekiel is taken now into Babylon, Daniel working in the palace with Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Ezekiel working more among the common people as a prophet. During this time, where's Jeremiah? Jeremiah is in Jerusalem, trying to get those, those, those few remaining people there to truly repent, and they were refusing to do so. Now, 586 is a very important date in Israel's history. This is the time when Babylon came back for the third time, and what did they do? They completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They burned and razed it to the ground. They absolutely obliterated Solomon's temple, which would have been an absolutely unthinkable thing. Now, let me just talk about that for a brief moment. See, we sometimes can think of temples as like church buildings, you know? When the water isn't working, you think, oh, that's troublesome. If the whole building were to be burned down, that would certainly be an upsetting event. But that is nothing like the temple of God being destroyed in Israel. See, the temple is where God actually, His glory, actually dwelt with His people. See, we, we are spoiled in a glorious way to have the Holy Spirit residing in us personally today and corporately. That is something Israel could hardly dream of. But God was residing inside the literal Holy of Holies in the temple. And once a year, blood was put uh, there above uh, the angels on top of the Ark of the Covenant because that is where God dwelt amongst His people. And for God to leave the temple and for it to be destroyed was a truly upsetting event for the nation of Israel. And so that is where you find yourself at. And for decades, this goes on, and the people are no doubt feeling hopeless. They are feeling afraid. And they don't know uh, in many ways what to do. Look with me if you're to your left, sec, end of Second Chronicles, right to your left of Ezra. 
I want to read a few verses here about this moment in Israel's history. This is at the very end as Babylon is coming in to take control. This is 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Verse 1. The people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim, his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed his name to Jehoiakim, but Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah, and Jehoiachin, uh, his son, reigned in his place. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In the spring of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord and made his brother Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. I just pause there. Note this fact. People sometimes speak of God in the Old Testament as being particularly wrathful. Now, I want to say just the opposite is the case. In the Old Testament, we see the patience of the Lord in an astonishing way. Judah had been living in a state of almost constant rebellion against God for something like 800 years at the time when God finally judges them and sends Babylon against them. So God patiently waits. Century after century. How would your patience be doing, by the way, in this regard? A hundred years of waiting. Two, three, four, five, six. Finally, God says, okay, enough is truly enough. I am going to send my judgment against the people. Let's pick back up in verse 17. Therefore, this is referring to God. Therefore, he, God, brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged, He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And here it is. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him, 
and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So you can see here the kingdom has been broken down. If you move to the next slide, uh, you'll see here it's very similar to the slide you just saw. You can see the route that the uh, exiles took as they went up north and made their way eventually over to Babylon during those three different waves during this time period. Now listen, you got to think about this. There was a Davidic king, and to David, God had promised this. Remember this story, David, when he settled in Jerusalem... There was a degree of peace. He finds Nathan the prophet, the same Nathan who would later rebuke him with the Bathsheba incident. You're the man, that Nathan. He finds Nathan says, Nathan, I have an idea. You know, I'm living in this palace here in Jerusalem, and the Lord is still living in the tent. I want to make him a great and glorious house, a temple for him to live in. And Nathan says, sounds good to me. Do, do what, is in your, what, what is in your heart. And then that night, the Lord says to Nathan, um, Nathan, you didn't ask me if that's what I wanted. You just kind of said, that sounds good. So actually, Nathan, I don't want David to build the temple. I want his son Solomon to build the temple, but I've got a message for David. I want you to tell David this message. Now picture, imagine you're David. The Lord says to him, David, you want to build me a house? I'm going to let your son do that. And instead, I'm going to build you a house. And by house, I don't mean a building. I mean a dynasty. And here's what I'm going to promise you. You will always have forever a son on the throne. For all of eternity, you're going to have a son forever and ever sitting on a throne representing me to guide my people. That's a glorious promise, but here's the problem. What, what did Babylon just do? It took the kings of Israel into exile, and they no longer reign on a throne. And so what does it look like? It looks like, where's God keeping his word? I mean, we've got no Davidic king on the throne for 70 years. There's no real king reigning in Israel. So what are we to do? Turn with me to Psalm 89. This is to your right, Psalm chapter 89. And this is the kind of psalm that would have been written and would have been sung during the exile when no Davidic king is reigning on the throne and the house of David seems to have been dismantled by Babylon. It's worth reading the whole psalm, but I will just read some segments here. Look at verse 20. Psalm chapter 89, verse 20. Psalm 89, verse 20. I have found David, my servant, uh, with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. Verse 26. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will, listen, I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Skip down to verse, uh, verse uh, 35. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Now that sounds great, but then here's the truth of exile, verse 38. 
But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. It's the same word for Messiah there. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned the back edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. That's what Babylon did. Verse 45, you have cut short the days of his youth and have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Now that is the setting when we get to the beginning of the book of Ezra. So let's turn back to the very beginning of the book of Ezra. This is the setting. And as you turn there, I just want to add this, keep this in your mind as you read Old Testament in particular. Back then, it wasn't that people believed in God, capital G. People believed in all kinds of gods. Uh, the Babylonians believed in Yahweh, the God of Israel. They just thought he was one of a thousand deities. And they thought he was kind of a weak deity because Babylon beat up Israel. And therefore, whose gods are stronger? The Babylonian gods are clearly stronger than the God of Israel because who won in the battle? Babylon did. So this is how they thought. They thought whoever wins in battle has the stronger God. Whoever wins in battle is pleasing their God. That's how they visualized it. So you see, is the glory of God at stake in the world when his temple is in rubble and his city is destroyed, his people are mocked, and the covenant with David looks like it's hopeless and broken? Is God's glory at stake? Yes. And so listen, God will act for the good of his people and for the glory of his name because God's glory and his promises to his people are connected together. If God lies, he is dishonored. And God, of course, can never lie. God does not and cannot lie. But if God were to break his promises to his people, then God would be dishonored and his people would be destroyed. And so God's glory is at stake. And for 70 years, the tension mounts and mounts and mounts. And people are wondering, will God actually be true to his promises? And there's a, a voice speaking. You don't have to turn here. I'll read briefly. And my guess is almost everyone in this room knows Jeremiah 29, 11. Behold the plans I have for you, says the Lord. You know, you know that verse? I just want to read the context around that verse just briefly. You can listen. Uh, if you don't want to turn there, you can just listen real quick. Here's what Jeremiah says. He's talking to the people in exile during those 70 years. And let me just say, until Jeremiah speaks from God, they don't know it's going to be 70 years. It could be forever for all they know. So here's what Jeremiah says. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon... God says, I will visit you and I will fulfill my word to you and the promise to bring you back to this place for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So, Let's take that wonderful verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. Let's put it in context 
What is that verse about? God says, in 70 years, I'm going to restore Israel back to the nation. I've got plans to prosper you back home. You're not going to be lost in Babylon forever. Let me tell you something. Imagine you are sitting in Babylon right now. Your home has been destroyed. Some of your relatives have been murdered by the Babylonians in battle. Some of the things that happened to the women, I would rather not even mention right now. Horrific stuff has happened from Babylon. Perhaps some of your children have been killed by Babylonian soldiers. That also happened. You are absolutely wrecked and mourning. Psalm 137, we sat by the waters of Babylon and we wept. And our captives said to us, why don't you get out a harp and play us one of your joyful songs about how great Zion is. And they said, how can we sing the songs of our land in a foreign country? And they're just in despair. And you're in in a hopeless state. And yet you know God has promised in 70 years, I'm bringing you home. You say, God. We've got no strong king, we've got no army, we've got no forces, and no one is on our side. What are we ever going to do? And here's what God says. I am God. I am God. I am Yahweh. I will do this. And he said, it's it's not possible. Babylon is the greatest empire imaginable, and they've got total control, and they hate our religion, and they hate our God, and they've crushed us, and they're not going to let us go, and they're not going to let us go rebuild And then this amazing thing happens in the providence of God. God raises up a pagan king, a polytheistic pagan king named Cyrus from Persia. And Cyrus goes to battle with Babylon and he destroys the Babylonian empire and takes it over, creating the largest empire of the time. Let's go to the next slide here. Uh, You can see on this slide the size, that's an enormous area, the Persian empire, the purple there, takes over, I think it was the largest empire at that time that had ever existed in the world, takes over an enormous area, almost going all the way to India, and on the other side going down to Egypt, and Cyrus is absolutely huge. And here's something absolutely amazing. Look in God's providence what God gets Cyrus to do. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Read the first four verses. In the first year of Cyrus... King of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord, that's Yahweh, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, that's again, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with them and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now you say, that is astonishing. That's an astonishing turn of events. Let's go to the next slide as well here. So this, uh, some of you may have seen this if you've been to the British Museum. This is called the Cyrus Cylinder. It was discovered in 1879. That cylinder, it's only about nine or so inches uh, across, is 2,600 years old, and that's the original. This was found uh, in what is essentially the Nineveh-type area, Babylonian area uh, of the time today. And uh, it's amazing because Cyrus had this written, and this is the original. This dates back to Cyrus himself, and I just got to read you a little excerpt from this. It's, it's broken. We don't have all the words. Some of the words you can see are missing, but listen, these are words straight from Cyrus from a long time ago. This is what Cyrus said, quote, I returned the images of the gods, 
is the idols. I return the images of the gods uh, to their places. Don't worry about that, by the way. That's the, uh, they're doing some duct work, okay, next in, in the building. So if you see anything falling down, that's for the duct work that they're doing uh, right now, trying to fix the air conditioning unit. <clears throat> I, return to the, I return the images of the gods to their places, and I let them dwell in eternal abodes in their temples. I gathered all the inhabitants, that's the exiled peoples, and returned them to their dwellings. May, now listen, may all the gods whom I settled in their sacred centers ask daily of Bel and Nebu, this is the Babylonian gods, may they ask daily of Bel and Nebu that my days be long and may they intercede for my welfare. May they say to Marduk, my God, Cyrus the king reveres you and Cambyses his son. Okay, do you hear that he does not believe only in the God of Israel? He believes in many gods, but it is true that he had a new policy. Now, just, just listen here. This is where God's sovereignty and pragmatic politics mysteriously go together. And I don't know how they go together, but they go together. Here, here, here's the thing. It says in this text what is absolutely true. The Lord, verse 1 of Ezra 1, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to make this proclamation to send Israel home, right? The Lord stirred up him up to do that. Absolutely true. And yet in Cyrus's mind, he was not doing this truly out of any kind of sincere devotion to Yahweh. Why was he doing it? It was politically expedient. Let's see if this makes any sense, okay? In Babylon, this was their political move. We want to have control. So what do we do? We destroy everyone's gods and temples and idols. We force them to adopt our religion. We bring Daniel to our place. We brainwash Daniel and his friends, right, with all of our beliefs, all of our teaching, our customs, and we're going to unite our kingdom under our one set of gods. Cyrus had a different plan. Cyrus, again, was just a politician. That's all he was being. He, he wanted to bring unity to his empire. He wanted there to be social cohesion. So what was his plan? His plan was don't stomp on the people. If you want the people to like you, don't stomp on them and destroy their temples. No, give them money. Tell all the people that you've exiled, send them all back home. Let everybody rebuild their temples and have their idols of their gods in their temples. And guess what? Their gods will be happy with me and the people will be more happy with me and the people can live where their ancestors grew up and they'll have much more morale and they'll be doing much better uh, in that way. And that's what Cyrus was thinking. But do you see behind his Politicized thinking was God at work behind the scenes, stirring him to do that very thing. And that's exactly what, what you meant for evil, Cyrus, God meant for good. That, that's exactly what happened in this particular scene. So I want to come to a conclusion here with a few takeaways. Number one, Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now listen, the last few years in particular, we've seen some unsettling things in the political world. I won't go into detail right now, but I'm pretty sure you know what I'm talking about. There, there are some unsettling things that are going on in our culture and in, really across the Western world right now. Here's what we know. We are right to think carefully about those issues, to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, we can engage at whatever level we can engage and try to make whatever difference we, we can make. But at the end of the day, when we've done our responsibility, we cannot be locked in paralyzing worry and fear about the future. We have to know that, listen, when Nebuchadnezzar comes to attack, God stirred him up to do that. That's what it said in 2 Chronicles. God sent him. And when Cyrus frees the people for good, God stirred him up. So whatever chaotic circumstances are going on, we have to trust that God is in control. Whether they seem 
pleasing or displeasing, whether they're confusing or they are illuminating, we have to trust that once we've done our responsibility, we can pray for our leaders. We should pray for them. First Timothy 2, pray for the kings and those in authority that we might live, live peaceful lives. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, we cannot be locked into worry and fear about the future. I think of Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that everyone has to be registered in their family's hometown. That was done out of nothing but self-serving political purposes. Caesar was being egotistical when he made that decree, troubling many, many people, displacing families just so he could figure out his census numbers, essentially, right? That's what he was up to. That was sinful. Caesar Augustus was no uh, believer. But did God have a plan behind the scenes? There was a prophecy. The son of David would be born in Bethlehem. And so God had to get Joseph and Mary out of Nazareth, down south into Bethlehem for the birth of Jesus. And so what does God do? God could have done that in a thousand ways. But God flexes his providential muscle and says, I'm going to take the most powerful man on earth. And I'm going to get his decree to bring the Messiah, my son, to the right town so that I can fulfill Micah chapter 5, verse 2. That is astonishing. And if God is sovereign over the kings of the earth, is he not sovereign over the coworker that you sit next to every day? Is he not sovereign over your neighbors, your friends, your family? He is sovereign behind the scenes and we can trust him. We can trust him. I want to wrap up in the New Testament. Turn with me to 2 Peter way back in your New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter is dealing with the idea that Jesus isn't really coming back, is he? It's been quite a while since he left. And there are scoffers mocking the second coming of Christ. So let's, let's look at this one example of a promise from God that can be a struggle for people to believe. Jesus is truly, physically, visibly coming back. How do we struggle if there's doubts someone has about that promise? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. God keeps his word. Verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Return of Christ. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That's Noah's flood. Let me stop there. Do you think people were doubting that Noah's flood was going to happen? In the wilderness, a man is building a giant boat. Like, this guy is crazy. No, he's trusting God's impossible word will come true. Verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, 
not wishing that you, any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I want to close on this point. If there is any part of you that is skeptical about the return of Christ, meditate on this passage and say, Lord, just like the people in Noah's day doubted the truth of the flood, and then the people in the time of exile doubted we're ever going to get out of this place. Let us see your faithfulness. Is there ever going to be a son of David again who will sit on the throne? He was born in Bethlehem. He is now sitting at the right hand of God. David's throne has been lifted back up. God has kept his word. And Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. And we must turn and trust in him to be saved and forgiven. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, Ezra reminds us that you are faithful. That through your sovereignty... And your goodness and your faithfulness and love, we know that you always do what you say, even when it looks completely and utterly hopeless. Even when scoffers come scoffing and mocking the promises of God, we know because you have already fulfilled so many prophecies and kept so many promises, we know that the remaining promises in your word will be kept, that Jesus will come, that there will be a new creation, that there will be a final judgment. And that only those who are in union with Christ by faith alone, through grace alone in Christ alone, will be rescued and delivered from sin and delivered into that new creation where righteousness dwells. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.